If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. We'll crack down on the predatory speculators that stack the deck against you. So no more blind bidding. No more foreign wealth being parked in homes that people should be living in. Right. Uh, welcome aboard. Rob Riggenridge with you here on the Chorus Radio Network. So the voice you heard, well, one of the voices you heard was uh, Liberal Leader and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Uh, you also heard, a, I suppose, a rather rude heckler who kind of made a fair point you know, the, the challenge for the liberals in talking about any of these issues is, well, you've had six years to address them. And this is, I think, particularly awkward on, on the question of housing. But obviously, it's something Canadians are concerned about. The federal leaders are talking about it. Uh, terrific journalists like Justin Ling, he's a freelance journalist, also author of the book Missing from the Village. He's writing about these issues, as he's been doing for some time now, and uh, joins us on the line here this afternoon to talk more about the uh, great housing debate. Justin Ling, uh, mclean's.ca, by the way, the latest from you on this. But appreciate you joining us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Hey, good afternoon, Rob. Um, so I don't know. Did, did that did that rude heckler have a have a point? Yeah, honestly, I think I'm team rude heckler in this context. <laughs> I don't necessarily condone or encourage heckling of our federal leaders, but right. the guy has a point. You know, Justin Trudeau came out this morning to pitch a housing plan that is is you know as one economist told me is is an incoherent jumble of ideas largely ideas stolen from his competitors and you know at, at the core of it is is sort of this this statement that their work thus far to date over the past six years is somehow remarkable or impressive um or has substantially addressed or or, or tackled the crisis which is just unbelievably galling because it hasn't and we know it hasn't you know the liberals have an absolutely abysmal track record on building housing in this country on getting housing built on paving the way for affordable housing on encouraging private development on making uh, housing more affordable or even just reducing price inflation in housing and now they're coming out and pretending like they're the only ones who can be trusted to do it it's 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 unbelievably arrogant is what it is i mean the prime minister yeah. this morning basically said there are no simple solutions and the other two guys who are out here pledging them to you don't know what they're doing and i i it's just it's so bold it's, it's, it's quite impressive, really. Well, let's talk about what it is that, that needs addressing here, because we, we got a situation in Canada where for people who own a home, things are pretty good at the moment, especially for those maybe who <laughs> yeah. are, were looking at selling those. On the other hand, for those uh, looking to enter the market or, you know, people just looking to get a roof over their heads, it, it's a very different situation. So are, are the parties at least clear on what it is they're trying to address here? 
Yes and no. I mean, you know, let's just quickly acknowledge what the problem is here, right? We've had significant inflation in the prices of homes in this country for a variety of reasons. Part of it is that, um, you know, uh, debt is very cheap right now. It's very easy to get a mortgage. Part of it is that you, you're seeing a huge influx of new people into the country um, uh, and people moving into kind of new cities, smaller cities, especially during the pandemic. All of that is driving uh, uh, housing prices up. And on top of that, we're just not building like we used to. We're not building the number of homes that we actually need in this country. So what you're actually seeing is a supply-demand problem. Uh, we don't have enough supply and we have too much demand. Uh, now, there's a really open question as to whether or not parties like the Liberal Party actually wanted to fix this, right? Because as you note, if you own a home right now, in most parts of the country, in Vancouver and Toronto and Halifax, a few other places, things are really good, right? You've seen the value of your home probably go up 10, 20, 30, 50, 100%. And you're sitting there thinking, I'm going to make off like a bandit if and when I decide to sell or if I feel like refinancing or whatever. Um, so there's something to be said for the fact that Justin Trudeau and and, and to some degree, Aaron O'Toole and to some degree, Jagmeet Singh um, have looked at their voters and said, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to rob my voters of that huge windfall that they're looking for when they sell their home. Right. And what I'll do to compensate for that is make it cheaper. I'll subsidize people buying homes, the first time home buyer tax credit, the first time home buyer incentive, uh, rent subsidy, so on and so forth. So basically what they're doing is trying to preserve the value that these people have gotten from their homes and subsidizing the cost of people trying to get into the market. Um, and you know, that is a primarily political decision. But what it is in fact doing is further ginning up and accelerating price inflation in the housing market, yeah. and it's creating a disaster. Um, and what's really interesting is that Justin Trudeau has continued along those lines while both Aaron O'Toole and Jagmeet Singh have gone in a radically different direction. You've seen in their platforms that have been unveiled in the past few weeks a plan to actually get building again, uh, potentially to even uh, deflate demand at least a little bit. There's, there's a mixed bag in there. But you've seen a serious effort to tackle this problem from the Conservatives and the NDP, and you have not seen that from the Liberal Party of Canada. Yeah, look, I'm not an economist, but it's simple enough. If you juice demand and you know address supply, you're you're just going to drive those prices even higher. Yeah. So let's talk about the supply thing because it seemed on the surface, you know, like the liberals were trying to one up the conservatives. The conservatives say a million houses will do a, a million four, one point four, but when you actually break it all down, there's some some weird uh, aspects to yeah. this, like the idea of preserving homes. That that's a yeah. lot different than building a home. What does that number actually mean? Well, to start with, it's worth noting that the Liberal Party has been saying for years that it is expanding access to affordable and and you know rent market-based uh, housing in this country, and by and large, they haven't been. Report after report from the Parliamentary Budget Officer has made it abundantly clear that the Liberal Party has not done all that much to improve access to housing in this country over the last six years. Um, there's one recent report from just this month that basically said uh, the Liberals can probably bring about building about 60,000 homes in Canada over the last four years, which is just woefully mismatched to the actual demand for new housing in this country. Um, and what's more, they actually found that many 
places of targeted investment have actually declined since the Harper government. So Justin Trudeau, in some respects, is spending less money on housing, especially critical housing, than the Harper government. So that's the baseline. So when he comes out and says, we're going to build 1.4 million homes, that number certainly you know made my eyes pop. But when you get down to it, you're right. That 1.4 million is new homes, uh, renovated and repaired homes, and then preserved homes. And, and that preserved word is incredibly odd because, in fact, preserving homes can be a barrier to building higher density homes. So actually, it's not necessarily a good thing. What's more is that when you really drill down on those numbers, um, you're really talking about 100 to 150,000 new homes uh, over the next four to five years, which, again, is just wildly insufficient when you consider the fact that in every major city, you're seeing uh, housing encampments or tent encampments pop up in parks full of people who cannot find a home, who have been priced out of the market, who cannot find subsidized or affordable or social housing, uh, who cannot afford rent in those cities. And to say that 100 to 150,000 new units is enough is absolutely laughable. Jugmeet Singh, by contrast, is proposing 500,000 uh, affordable homes through the CMHC, which is maybe more aspirational than actual, but that's a really uh, promising target. Aaron O'Toole, by contrast, like you said, is promising a million homes, but largely done uh, through the provinces, through the cities, through private developers in, frankly, a much more credible way than the other two parties are proposing. Aaron O'Toole would actually tie some federal uh, program spending in the cities to upzoning and to increasing density in and around transit projects, which is exactly what we need in this country. It is so hard to build high-density housing in Toronto uh, in parts of Vancouver, in Ottawa, elsewhere, because cities don't want bigger buildings. They don't want multi-unit apartment buildings. They don't want eight, nine, ten-story condos. But that's what we need. If we're going to fit all of these people into our cities, we need fewer single-family homes. We need more five, ten, six-story apartment buildings or condo buildings that can fit more people inside them. So Aaron O'Toole is really the only one talking seriously about it. Something about Aaron O'Toole and Justin Trudeau talked about is is the foreign buyer side of the equation and this notion that, uh -huh. you know, the, the uber wealthy foreigners are coming in, they're paying incredibly inflated prices, they're jacking up overall prices in, in Canada. To what extent is, is this a factor in housing prices in this country? It's wildly overstated. It has long been a boogeyman for people looking for someone to blame. And frankly, it's really easy to blame foreigners because you know, by definition, they're not here, right? Yeah. So um, you, you look back about five years in Vancouver, as you saw housing prices skyrocketing out of control, there was this effort, especially from the NDP government there, to point the finger at foreign buyers, particularly wealthy Chinese investors. And so what they did, they brought in a foreign home buyers um, tax. And it was steep and it was really effective in discouraging foreign investment. So you actually saw the number of foreigners buying homes in Vancouver go off a cliff. It de declined precipitously. What you didn't see, however, was any real effect on price. Uh, prices dipped slightly at first, but then rebounded not long after within about seven months. Uh, and some good analysis of that uh, policy basically showed it had no long-term effect on housing prices or housing demand. 
demand. Uh, and what you actually might see from a policy like this is a lack of new money into the housing market. And to some degree, we actually do need more money in the housing market. We actually do need investors to help put money into new projects. And actually, again, to go back to Aaron O'Toole's plan, which by far I think is is the most serious and credible of the three, um, Aaron O'Toole's plan would uh, limit some foreign buyers, but would actually encourage foreign investment, especially in new rental properties, which again is exactly what we need. We need more projects in this country so we can house people. Um, and the fact that Justin Trudeau is pitching an outright and total ban, which is what is in his platform, an outright and total ban on foreign home buyers is absolutely bonkers. I, I can't stress enough how bad of a policy that is. It will probably have no significant effect on price. It will probably not have a major effect on demand. It will uh, ultimately uh, disenfranchise a whole bunch of students, a whole bunch of would-be immigrants, even potential refugee claimants would be stuck in a really tough spot by not being able to buy anything into the communities they're moving into. And what's more, we actually have StatsCan data that says very bluntly that the number of purchases in uh, major markets that are coming from abroad ranges from 2 to 4%. It is negative. Negligible. The the real problem is domestic speculation, domestic invent investors who are buying homes and who are flipping them, domestic investors who are buying multi-unit buildings and turning them into single-family homes, uh, and, 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 and frankly, just generally um, a mismatch between the amount of supply and the amount of demand we have. This is not anyone's fault, but we do have to fix it. Much more from you. As mentioned, you got a piece up at uh, mcleans.ca. Uh, Justin, thanks so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate it. Rob, thanks for having me. All the best. There you go. That's uh, freelance journalist Justin Link. So some great points from him about the conversation that's happening. You know, who's being serious, who's maybe not so much. As he says in his piece, the incoherent jumble that is the liberal housing plan, the NDP and the conservatives, he says, taking seriously the idea that we need many new homes, the liberals don't seem to be. So your thoughts on what you've heard from the parties so far, your thoughts on what it is we need to fix in this country. Clearly, we've got different situations. Right. I mean, you know, the cost of the average cost of a house in Winnipeg is a fraction of what it is in, you know, Vancouver, Toronto. Uh, so you get different situations in different parts of the country. Right. But obviously, I mean, the cost of a house in Winnipeg, even though it's, you know, a third of what it is in Vancouver, Toronto, I mean, it has still gone up over the last year. So to what extent is that a problem? How do we address it? And if we build a whole bunch of new homes, what does that do to the value of existing homes? So how much should homeowners be leery about this approach? And how much uh, of a problem do we have that we need to fix? Your thoughts on all of that? Well, good afternoon, Alberta. Welcome aboard on the Chorus Radio Network. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Monday afternoon. Thanks for joining us uh, here today. A lot to get to over the course of the next hour. A lot of conversation around vaccine mandates, vaccine requirements. Uh, BC is just announcing uh, their plans. Uh, here in Alberta, we're kind of leaving it to uh, businesses and individual groups. Calgary Flames announcing today as of September 15th, that's going to be the requirement that, that would apply to the Stampeders, the Hitmen and the Roughnecks, probably only a matter of time before uh, their counterparts in Edmonton follow suit. It's also an interesting conversation I wanted to have here about uh, religious organizations, churches, etc., and how they approach this issue of vaccination and more broadly speaking, you know, the pandemic itself. It's been a difficult year and a half, clearly, for religious communities and uh, organizations. So joining us to talk a bit more about uh, this side 
uh, of the uh, conversation. Very pleased to welcome in the program here this afternoon, John Van Slotten. He's a pastor with Marta Loop Church in Calgary. He's also author of a couple of books, The Day Metallica Came to Church, and also uh, Every Job a Parable. John, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me. We'll talk more specifically about the uh, the vaccination issue. I just wanted to get your sense more broadly speaking. All the disruption uh, over the past, whatever it's been now, 16th months and uh, churches closing and churches having reduced in-person congregation, trying to get creative with technology. How difficult has it been for, for religious groups and communities? Yeah, I think difficult for all of us collectively, um, yeah. maybe especially difficult for our little church because we were starting a brand new church. We were four weeks right. into it and then a pandemic uh, started. Uh, that was not in our uh, first year planning. So, yeah, we pivoted fast, a small group, limited resources, but found a way to go online. And like a lot of churches, um, connected with a lot of people via that online medium. Um, and like a lot of churches now are, are now looking at, you know, the timing and the way uh, through which we're going to re-engage live services. So, yeah, a challenge, but a good challenge. And, uh, you know, I think everyone held on in faith and we're hoping to be close to being on, on the other side of this. Right. And obviously, I mean, even, you know, within Christian organizations, there, there's, you know, Christianity is not a monolith, as, as we all know, when it comes to viewpoints on certain issues. You know, we have seen, you know, some Christian churches in Alberta be, you know, much more forceful when it comes to opposing restrictions or even, you know, opposing vaccinations. Um, and so maybe there's a perception about, you know, some kind of a clash between religion and in science. What about that side of it? Yeah, well, we, uh, <clears throat> for the last uh, year and a half, I have preached sermons on the theology of wearing a mask, on the parable of a vaccine, on uh, the immune human immune system as a bio text, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I just am finishing a book on faith and science, and our faith tradition has always been very strong science, um, uh, very strong supporters of science. Uh, God, in the Christian story, made all things. God is the ultimate empirical mind. Scientists are made in the image of a God uh, who made everything, and in our passion to explore the nature of nature and, and of the universe, um, uh, it's it's kind of a godlike thing uh, to do, and so we we are pro 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 science, and so uh, that that's the foundation upon which um, we're we've developed our policy for vaccinations for our church uh, when we open up this fall. Um, we think God has a lot to do with uh, the development of this vaccine. Um, that uh, science fr from from the get go um, in the first century uh, had its roots in uh, the Christian call to uh, steward the world and and to uh and to understand the nature of nature to better understand the maker of the nature of nature so we're we're pro-science we're pro-vaccine um theologically uh there's a lot of rationale god has always cared for the weakest of the weak and uh I think this vaccine is a gift from God to humanity at this time so that we don't have another 1918, uh, but instead have a 2020. Uh, still very difficult and, and tragic in so many ways, but could have been so much worse had not the uh, miracle of this vaccine come to be. Yeah. Well, and I think you allude to kind of the, the other side of that age-old theological debate, right? I mean, you know, why does God let bad things happen? Why, why did God yeah. let this pandemic happen, right? 
Yeah, this is going to be a two-hour show now if we're going to start to plan. <laughs> maybe, I mean, I, maybe. Right. Don't know. Nobody knows, right? Two, yeah. two, two millennia of Christian, Christian thought, and nobody has really come up with the clear answer for that. But, but, but what is true, I believe, is that uh, we're not alone in this time. I mean, uh, our city, the world, right, having this existential crisis, um, uh, a, a, a mortality shot over the bow of humanity. And um, so we're all asking questions and trying to figure it out. And, and that's one of them. Why would a God, if you're religious, allow this to happen? But um, also look at this this amazing thing. I mean, that 30 years ago, a couple of scientists started to think about this radical new kind of vaccine, initially rejected. It eventually comes to be. It eventually is what we're now uh, putting into our arms from Moderna and Pfizer and and governments and companies and, and, and the whole global system comes together with the world of science to, to in record time, roll out billions of shots in arms uh, over the last year and a half. Is, is to me uh, a, a very big common good that we might also thank God for. Now, the question of vaccine requirements, so you actually wrote an op-ed uh, just last week about this issue, and it's interesting because you point out that, you know, typically the conversation has involved, you know, sporting events or concerts or, you know, nightclubs, fitness centers, that sort of thing. But for whatever reason, we, we've kind of left churches out of that conversation. Why, why do you think that is? Um, uh, it, for the, it's the same reason that we struggled as a leadership board um, deeply with uh, choosing to go in the direction we're going in. Uh, churches are open doors. We, we want to invite people. We want to include all people. Um, Christ included all kinds of broken people who are on the edges, right? There was no prerequisite for walking into, into uh, the Christian life. Um, and so, yeah, all of that kind of pushes back against a, a decision to um, temporarily with alternatives. You can go online, you can watch on the website, you can live stream, um, you can give me a call, I'll tell you what the sermon was about. But just mm -hmm. temporarily putting some boundaries around our physical gatherings um, uh, so, that, so that the weakest of the weak those who are immunocompromised, those who are seniors for whom the efficacy of the shots are starting to wane, those who, we have two people in our church with Down syndrome, a 29-year-old man and an 8-year-old girl. The man is fully vaccinated, the girl can't be yet. Right. And I'm thinking, why wouldn't we, why wouldn't everyone in this our little faith community want to do what's best for that young girl so that because people with Down syndrome are four times more likely to catch COVID, and then if they catch it 10 times, Times more likely to die of COVID. Just comorbidities. Uh, yeah. Simple math. It was on the national last month. So why why wouldn't we do everything we can for a while in order? And there's 399 other churches in the city of Calgary for those who choose to be. And I think they have the right to choose, but choose to not be vaccinated. There are lots of faith Christian faith communities where they can attend. But for this one, for those folks, we're going to do this for a while. Well, and, and you touch on it in your op-ed, right? Still that dilemma, though, that, you know, the, the Christian tradition is, is the welcoming one, the, the, the doors open one. And at some level, maybe it feels like you're, you're turning people away. Yeah. Oh, and this is anecdotal. So sure. 
a few people in our the small group that was here when I started last year. Um, there are there are three or four people who who are feeling pushed away because they've chosen not to be vaccinated. And I mourn that. Um, and uh, we want to talk more as much as we can about uh, bridging that gap. Um, but since this article came out, I've uh, it's it's taken off in all kinds of other churches' Facebook pages, and there's a, a very vibrant debate about something that I think most people didn't think about. Like, really, shouldn't we maybe be doing this for the weakest of the week? And this is what Christ was all about, and he would have done anything to save a little child, um, a vulnerable child, to protect a child, to make room for a child. So, so it's it's rippling out into uh, a lot of communities, um, and. And causing what I think to be very good questions. We, I don't know fully why we would default to accommodate someone who chooses to, according to the science as we know it, according to the global scientific community, who would choose to not get vaccinated, why we would um, accommodate that over the rights of um, a kid who can't be immunized um, to be in the safest place possible. And if it, you know that's stark, and it's much more complex than that. But th- that math we do pretty quickly, um, and then it becomes a no-brainer. We protect the weakest for a while, six months or eight months or whenever we're done with this, and then uh, doors wide open, and and of course everyone welcome. Now you're making a decision, obviously, for for your congregation, for your church, and you don't speak for other churches. But I mean, is it your sense that? Others might look at this, or does it feel like maybe you're, you're kind of going it alone at this point? Yeah, well, story comes out, and then on Twitter, a couple pastor friends from Winnipeg and Toronto. Yeah, you know, we, we tried this. We tried this a month ago with our board, and it was a, an absolute no-go. We tried to water it down a bit. Absolute no-go. Um, but, you know, personally, you could hear from these different leaders um, that— if it were solely their choice, they they might lean in this direction. Um, and then in terms of the, the broader public, um, we had a church picnic yesterday and a young couple shows up who lives in the community who's, who are hyper vigilant, right? Well, I'm worried about my kids going to school. We're still wiping down our groceries. They come to this little church's picnic and uh, they hear about a church who's going to be really safe in these ways, our, our decision to be this way. And they go, we want to be a part of that church. And I... I think there are thousands of people in Calgary alone who have been, who did the, the right thing, got double jabbed, have kept all the boundaries, who have paid all the price to keep their kids away from their grandparents, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, who have economically suffered, who have done what needed to be done in order to bring all of us, the common good of all of us to, this, to the best end possible as soon as possible that might appreciate that a church would would not be the sort of antivirus, anti-science, anti-anti-anti. Um, we're for it all, and we're for them, and yeah, we'll do anything we can to uh, make our little sanctuary uh, the safest place possible for them. Well, martaloopchurch.ca is the website, I guess, uh, September 12th, right, is uh, return to, to in-person services? Yeah, September 12th, 10 o'clock, hopefully... Uh, 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 we'll get a few people out and hopefully no protesters. We'll see. John, very interesting conversation. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Yeah, thanks, Rob. All the best. There you go. That's uh, John Van Sladen. He's the uh, pastor at Marta Loop Church in Calgary. So September 12th, they resume live services, but with the uh, policy in place that, that vaccination for those 12 and up is required. 
So he recognizes that not everybody's going to be happy about that, but feels from their perspective and their community, it's the right thing to do. Uh, you can read more of uh, John's work, uh, more on his books at uh, johnvansloten.com. That's S-L-O-T-E-N, johnvansloten.com. Welcome back. So, unfortunately, I mean, it seems pretty clear that we're down to a, a fourth wave of COVID-19. And, you know, look, I, I mean, thanks to vaccines, this is going to be a, a different kind of wave. But it's unclear exactly how different. It's unclear what this is going to look like. Um, and, and so to that end, there's a lot of conversation about how to address this moving forward. And I think right now the emphasis is on how do we keep things open? But at the same time, how do we keep things safe? You know, clearly when it comes to vaccination, and, and the numbers speak for themselves, right? Most cases are, are amongst the unvaccinated. The vast majority of hospitalizations are among the unvaccinated. The vast majority of deaths are among the unvaccinated. So the more we can get people vaccinated, the more we're going to be able to, to manage all of this going forward. Whether herd immunity is, is still uh, achievable at this point, it's, it's hard to know. I don't know if we could ever get to the vaccination number. That would be required for that. You know, it could be 85, 90, 95 percent of the population. That's just not realistic. But obviously, the better we can do on the vaccination side, the more easily we'll be able to to manage whatever's coming in the months ahead here. So it's not surprising that we're seeing a lot of momentum behind the idea of requiring proof of vaccination uh, for certain kinds of events and venues and businesses, etc., now, a few provinces are already going down this route uh, here in Alberta. We haven't really heard from, from the government. Uh, I mean, their position, I guess, that they last uh, articulated it was that they're not in support of that approach. But, you know, we're seeing uh, businesses and others take matters into their own hands. Alberta's two NHL teams, uh, the Flames and the Oilers, have both announced that that's going to be a requirement for fans attending their games this year. By extension, the announcement from the Flames applies to the Stampeders, the Hitmen, the Roughnecks. We're seeing some businesses even uh, start to look at this as an approach. Universities are, well, they're close to that, you know, with the option of, of rapid testing, but an emphasis on vaccination. Well, next door in B.C., they're going a lot further. The B.C. government uh, bringing in or announcing yesterday that they're going to be bringing in what essentially is, I guess, what we refer to as a vaccine passport system requiring proof of vaccination for a long list of indoor venues and businesses and events. Maybe that's where this is all headed. So how much impact will it have on keeping a lid on a fourth wave? How much impact might it have on encouraging people to get vaccinated? Joining us for some thoughts, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Devin Grayson, Assistant Professor at the University of British Columbia School of Population and Public Health. Professor Grayson, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Rob. Okay, so let me get your thoughts, first of all, on what was announced in BC yesterday, your thoughts on whether this is the right time and, and the right decision. Sure, yes, the uh, announcements are coming every day uh, in the vaccine landscape right now. So yesterday, um, following the news from the states that the Pfizer vaccine had gotten full FDA approval, which mm -hmm. changes some people's thinking. The province of British Columbia announced that um, there will be a new BC COVID vaccine certificate or vaccine card that will be rolled out shortly. And this will function as proof of vaccination for people attending many types of optional indoor social and recreational events. 
So we've been told there will be at least one dose required by September 13th and full vaccination by October 24th. So there's time for people to get vaccinated now if they haven't started. And this will include things like indoor sporting events, theater, dance and music concerts, restaurants, both for indoor and patio dining, nightclubs, casinos, movie theaters, gyms, and group exercise activities, as well as uh, organized indoor events such as weddings, conferences, and workshops. Today, there were new announcements, including a provincial mask mandate for public indoor spaces that will return effective tomorrow, as well as masks in schools for grades four and up and recommended for younger children, and masks in indoor public spaces at post-secondary institutions. Mm -hmm. With regard to the proof of vaccination, uh, maybe it is meant to be twofold in terms of, A, encouraging people to get vaccinated, and, and B, trying to ensure that these kinds of settings can remain as safe as possible. What do you see as, as the biggest impetus for this? I think you're correct in saying this is a twofold approach. One, on one hand, to encourage people to become vaccinated. And it is likely that many people who are on the fence about COVID vaccination will be encouraged to get a vaccine if this makes a difference in their ability to attend a wedding or go out to eat, go to the movies with friends, etc. Um, and then on the other hand, so that we can ensure that places that are likely places for transmission, such as, you know, a wedding where there might be lots of hugging and crying and that type of thing, um, are as safe as possible, particularly as we head toward, you know, in Canada, the fall, where we often have more respiratory illnesses um, and things move inside more and more. What about those who, you know, say, well... Look, I mean, the vaccines aren't 100 percent, obviously. Vaccinated people can still get COVID-19. Vaccinated people can even still potentially spread COVID-19. Does that in any way, in your view, weaken the the argument for this approach? To me, that doesn't weaken the argument for this approach um, at all. We know that no vaccines are 100 percent effective. Um, uh, Virtually no medication of any sort is 100 percent effective, but they're still worth using when they are largely effective and safe for the public. Uh, In terms of transmission, the evidence that we're seeing, and of course we're getting more every day right now, is that people who are vaccinated are less likely to be infected. And once they're infected, less likely to transmit to others, although it is still possible. Right. In terms of of the vaccine hesitancy we've seen, uh, and as you say, this may help address it, but I suspect the reasons are are many, right, in terms of why uh, people have held off on on getting the vaccine. What's your sense then of of what more we need to be doing at at this point to to get through to people who are still reluctant or, or on the fence? That's a great question, Rob. So the tricky part about vaccine communication and increasing vaccine uptake is that while some messages work well for the majority of people, the unvaccinated minority who remain at this point are diverse, and there's no one answer to that question. And as a result, this next phase of the COVID vaccination rollout will be a little slower and more labor-intensive, but we can't get discouraged by this. There are some things we know will help. Um, Taking the time to understand the concerns of specific individuals and groups is really important in order to be able to address those concerns. We're seeing a shifting from mass vaccination sites to more personalized settings for vaccination, such as doctor's offices, pharmacies, and pop-up public health clinics. And that really makes sense right now because people with strong concerns often want to discuss their individual situations with a trusted healthcare provider. Um, In places that are communities with 
a whole community with low vaccine uptake, working with community leaders or trusted community representatives to build a good relationship and provide information and services in ways that will work well for that community and reach those community members is key. Uh, community insiders may in some cases be as effective or more effective messengers about vaccination than medical and scientific experts. And then, of course, in some cases, incentives such as vaccine requirements to access settings where COVID transmission is at risk may also play a role. Yeah, because it, it does feel, you know, certainly in recent weeks, like things have, have stalled a little bit when it comes to vaccine uptake, or in particular on first doses. So these these announcements in recent days, as you say, may may have some impact. I mean, how optimistic are you about, you know, how high we can get that number? I'm optimistic that we can eventually reach the levels required for herd immunity in Canada or community immunity. In order, mm-hmm. So by that, we mean not every single person will be vaccinated, but the vast majority will be, and enough so that when there is an outbreak, for example, someone travels and comes home, doesn't know they're infectious, develops COVID back here in Canada, enough people around them are vaccinated that they're going to stop transmission into the community. Um, And we have this for many other diseases by now, and I don't think there's any reason that we can't also achieve it with COVID. All right, we'll see how things play out in the weeks and months ahead here. We appreciate your insight, Dr. Grayson. Thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Thank you, Rob. All the best. Uh, Dr. Devin Grayson at uh, UBC School of Population and Public Health and uh, spoke uh, focus rather specifically on the question of vaccine hesitancy and how to address that. So she mentioned a couple of insignificant developments in the last couple of days. So in the U.S., and again, it, it's not necessarily uh, doesn't directly affect the situation in Canada although we may see similar steps coming here from Health Canada. Uh, but the Pfizer vaccine has received that, that full and complete approval from the FDA. Of course, was the emergency use authorization initially. So, uh, look, I think the data speaks for itself in terms of, you know, the safety, the efficacy of this vaccine. I think even for those who maybe were a little leery that it hadn't yet received a full approval, maybe this helps. Maybe this gets some people off defense. I think the approach of the proof of vaccination requirements might have the same impact as well. We've kind of gone from the carrot to the stick a little bit here. You know, in, things, uh, in terms of, you know, things like vaccine lotteries, et cetera, maybe we've maximized the, the benefit that that approach can have. Now we'll see what impact this has. So it's something to keep in mind uh, for Albertans who travel to B.C. because there are many Albertans who travel to B.C. You need to know about this and it is going to apply to you. Now, B.C. is going to set up a system uh, that B.C. residents are going to use to demonstrate their proof of vaccination. But if you're not a BC resident, you're not going to have that. Part of the challenge here in Alberta, even if the government believes that, okay, we're going to leave it to businesses and organizations to sort it out for themselves, do they have a role or responsibility at this point to provide something to Albertans, some kind of app or some kind of tool we can use uh, to make it as easy as possible to adhere to these requirements where they exist. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.